Hi, everyone. This is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. In this podcast, I'm going to summarize three research articles for you from the February 2018 issue of Radiology. Before I get to those articles, I want to briefly mention several introductory articles in the February issue. The first article is an outstanding review of injuries in the shoulder. This focuses on MRI evaluation of the shoulder, and the article emphasizes throwing injuries. The title is Shoulder Injuries in the Overhead Throwing Athlete, Epidemiology, Mechanisms of Injury, and Imaging Findings. The authors are from the Department of Radiology at Columbia University Medical Center. The first author is Dr. Dana Lin, the second is Tony Wong, and the senior author is Jonathan Kazam. Dr. Kazam is Chief of MSK Radiology and an Assistant Professor at Columbia. He's not published a lot yet, but seems to have great experience in this area. Nearly all of us have read shoulder MRIs, and injuries of the shoulder from repetitive throwing actions affect many individuals. The authors focus on baseball injuries since they are very highly studied. However, the same injuries may be present in throwing sports such as tennis, American football, or volleyball. I suppose if you live in India, the cricket players must have a lot of these injuries. I used to play a lot of tennis, and having a tennis racket seems to multiply the potential forces on the shoulder joint. I'm pretty sure I can feel about half of the injuries the authors review in this article. The article has a lot of nice MRI examples. You will find this to be an interesting review. The next review is about radiotheranostics. If you dissect the word radiotheranostics, the idea is to use a radioactive drug such as iodine-131 in combination with using that agent for both treatment and diagnosis. The title of the article is Radiotheranostics in Cancer Diagnosis and Management. The authors are all prominent in molecular imaging and include Dr. Jadavar at the University of Southern California, Dr. Chen at NIH NIBIB, Dr. Kai at my institution, the University of Wisconsin, and Dr. Umar Mahmood at Massachusetts General Hospital. The authors very nicely begin with something we all know about, radioactive iodine treatment as the prototype radiotheranostic agent. Their first table indicates diagnostic and imaging agents under development. Some of the main targets for these drugs have been for prostate cancer, neuroendocrine tumors, and lymphoma. This is a challenging area, but worth knowing about as more agents are being developed. If you are a patient who needs one of these drugs, they offer the potential of tremendous specificity for both diagnosis and treatment. The last opinion article is titled, Beyond Bi-RADS Density, A Call for Quantification in the Breast Imaging Clinic. The lead author is Dr. Emily Conant at the University of Pennsylvania. The authors note that about one-half of the states in the U.S. now require mammographers to report breast density. The reasons are twofold. First, certainly when the breasts are dense, the sensitivity and specificity of mammography decreases. Second, very high breast density is an independent risk factor for breast cancer. The prior BIRADS classification had you assess the amount of dense tissue over the entire breast. The newest BIRAD classification considers the single most dense area of the breast and has you classify that area. BIRADS A is almost entirely fatty, B is scattered fibroglandular density, and C is heterogeneously dense breasts. D is extremely dense. So that seems straightforward until you look to see if the system works or not. Dr. Conant and others evaluated 83 breast imagers in a database that included more than 200,000 mammograms. The assignment of dense breasts by breast imagers varied from only 6% to 84% agreement. This gets to one of my favorite bugaboo topics, use of vague descriptors in our radiology reports. For my own reports, 
I wince inside each time I use vague words such as minimal or moderate in my reports. But I was taught that way during residency, and you were probably as well. One of my instructors was famous for contradicting residents. I would say there was marked enlargement of the aorta. He would say, that's not marked. I will show you marked enlargement. Then he ran to his office and returned with a chest film that had an aorta that was the size of an oak tree in the middle of the chest. The point is, vague descriptive terms need to go away. I think this is the single most important reason we will welcome artificial intelligence in radiology. We need to move away from vague descriptors to numbers. Dr. Conant and her colleagues make an eloquent case that breast imaging may be a great place to start. Okay, perhaps that's a little longer than my usual introduction, but next I'll summarize several research articles from the February 2018 issue. Our first research article is about screening MRI for patients at high risk for breast cancer. I know that all of our listeners do not do mammography, yet the topic of breast cancer is of critical importance. All of us know someone who has been affected by breast cancer, oftentimes in our own family or our extended families. We all need to know some general information about breast cancer screening, especially in high-risk situations. The short title of the article is Influence of Risk Category and Screening Round on the Performance of an MR Imaging and Mammography Screening Program. The article first author is Susan Vreeman, and the research was done in the Netherlands. Every other time I pick up an interesting article, it seems to be from the Netherlands. There is some terrific radiology research being done there. What is the background? MRI is the most sensitive way that we have to detect breast cancer. General recommendations are that MRI should be used for breast cancer screening when the lifetime risk for breast cancer is 20 to 25% or higher. There are several groups of women in this category. The first are women with BRCA mutations. Their lifetime risk can be more than 80%. The example we think about is Angelina Jolet, who had prophylactic mastectomies at age 38. She really raised awareness of the risks with BRCA breast cancer mutations. Her lifetime risk was estimated at 87%. But other women are also at high risk. Three other categories include women who have a strong family history and women who have had breast cancer previously. Since all of us know someone who had breast cancer, that means we also know someone who is at high lifetime risk. The problem is huge. What is the sensitivity of breast MRI in a screening setting? The literature says the sensitivity is about 90%. That high sensitivity is the rationale behind offering MRI and mammography in a screening program. There's one major problem. The specificity of MRI is not quite so high. The specificity of MRI is actually lower than mammography in a screening program. MRI specificity is only about 85%, while mammography is 99%. Why is that? Specificity is about people who do not have the disease. If you test 100 women without breast cancer and you find 85 have a negative test, then the specificity is 85%. 15% did not have the disease but had a positive MRI. MRI finds a lot of things that enhance, and it takes experience to know which ones to ignore and which ones to biopsy. So what was done? The authors studied their breast cancer screening database for over 10 years. That included 2,463 women in their high-risk screening program. The mean age was 44 years. About 35% of these women had a BRCA mutation. Over that 10-year period, the average woman had three MRI scans and two mammograms. In the Netherlands, there is a nationwide cancer registry, so the authors were quite confident they had good follow-up on any patient with cancer. They also had women with prophylactic mastectomies at their institution. 
Therefore, they also looked at the pathology database for cancers detected for those patients at their hospital. What are the results? Of 129 cancers detected in their screening program, 118 were detected by MRI. That is a sensitivity of 91%, exactly at the performance level for MRI that is expected. What about mammography? Mammography detected 57% of cancers in the screening program. Considering all patients in their screening program, the overall sensitivity for cancer was 90%. Invasive cancers were much better detected on MRI than mammography. 83% were detected on MRI, but only 48% for mammography. For DCIS, MRI and mammography performed about the same, 70% for MRI and 72% for mammography. Okay, those numbers make sense and are generally consistent with expectations based on prior studies. But what about screening performance for different groups of women, BRCA mutations, family history, personal history, and others? The best performance for screening was for BRCA2 mutation carriers at 92% sensitivity and those with family history of breast cancer at 95%. Women with a personal history of breast cancer also had excellent screening performance at 91%. But for women who had BRCA1 mutation, screening sensitivity was only 81%. That suggests that Angelina Jolet had very good advice. About 20% of patients had cancers that were not detected with screening for BRCA1. Positive predictive values. We spoke about that last week. If you have a positive test, what is the likelihood you really have the disease? That means that extra views, ultrasounds, or biopsies are done for four of five patients who are screened, but who will not be found to have cancer. One other interesting aspect of a screening program, the existing cancers, or prevalent cancers, are found on the first screen. After that, the cancers that slowly develop, or incident cancers, are detected over some period of follow-up. For MRI, the sensitivity was 69% in the follow-up imaging rounds compared to 46% for mammography. One point is of practical importance is that a prior MRI scan or prior mammogram was extremely helpful for improving the specificity of MRI. Remember at the beginning, I noted a criticism of MRI was that the specificity of, was only about 85%. However, when a prior MRI or even a mammogram is available, the specificity improved dramatically to 97%, which was about the same as mammography at 98%. Conclusion. So we can summarize that for women in a screening program, the performance of our imaging tests tends to get better over time. The specificity of both MRI and mammography are very high, and MRI gets better on your follow-up tests. Patients with BRCA1 mutations have the most difficult time the sensitivity of the screening program is only about 80%, or at least 10-15% to 15 worse than other high-risk individuals. One final note, some women choose to go ahead and have prophylactic mastectomies to prevent the risk of future cancers. Of those patients, about 5% of breasts contain cancer at pathology, undetected cancers. Most of those cancers are quite small and are usually non-invasive. You will find the rest of the details of this article in the February 2018 issue of Radiology. Our second research article is about a topic that is becoming increasingly important, coronary artery disease detection with CT and MRI. The short title is Coronary Artery Disease, Diagnostic Performance of CT Perfusion and MR Perfusion Imaging. The research is from a multicenter trial that was performed at Charité in Berlin, Germany, and the NIH in Bethesda. The first author is Dr. Matthias Rief from Charité. The last author is Dr. Mark Dewey, also from Charité. 
This particular paper resulted from a substudy of the CORE 320 trial. The CORE 320 trial was a large multicenter clinical trial that was organized by my wonderful friend and longtime colleague, Dr. Joao Lima at Johns Hopkins. Let me briefly remind you of the main result of the CORE 320 trial that was reported in 2014. The study was the first multicenter clinical trial that evaluated CT stress perfusion and CT angiography. The combination of coronary CTA and CT perfusion had a sensitivity of 80% and specificity of 74% to detect physiologically significant coronary artery disease. More recently, we have heard about CT fractional flow reserve, or FFR. In theory, CT FFR allows a computer to detect perfusion abnormalities without stressing the patient. CT with stress perfusion and CT FFR are actually fairly similar in their diagnostic ability to detect significant coronary artery disease. But MR stress perfusion has been around for more than 10 years longer than CT stress perfusion. It works really well and is an easy test. We give a half a dose of gadolinium and look at resting perfusion in the heart. Then we can look at heart perfusion following the administration of adenosine or regadenosine administered intravenously. These drugs dilate the normal heart vessels, but not the diseased coronary arteries. Then we do a perfusion MRI and look for a perfusion defect. I mentioned at the beginning that this topic is becoming increasingly relevant. Why? On CT, we are seeing the coronary arteries better and better, even on our routine scans, those not dedicated to doing coronary CT angiography. This is because the newest CT scanners are getting faster and are freezing cardiac motion. When I was at the NIH in Bethesda, most of our patients were evaluated for cancer. A cancer CT involved chest, abdomen, and pelvis scanned after about 110 mils of iodine injected at 2 to 3 mils per second. Imaging occurs about 70 seconds after the contrast start of the injection. That cancer CT screen is certainly not optimized to see coronary artery anatomy, but at the NIH, your tax dollars paid for state-of-the-art CT scanners. We began to see remarkable coronary artery detail even when doing these cancer screens. As a result, our technologists did an extra 0.5 millimeter reconstruction for every patient over the heart. That way, we could go back and check the coronary arteries if needed. About 1 in 10 or 1 in 15 adult patients had some question of coronary or cardiac abnormality on the 3 millimeter slice images that we used for cancer imaging. So even without trying and without dedicated coronary CT protocols, CT can detect coronary artery narrowing. However, coronary blood flow is a different situation. That usually requires stress testing. When we see coronary narrowing, the next step is usually some sort of a stress examination to see if the coronary narrowing results in symptoms or a pressure drop. CT certainly finds nearly all of the coronary artery stenoses, but the positive predictive value of coronary artery CT is only about 50% or the flip of a coin. That means when we see narrowing, we are not often sure if the narrowing causes a significant decrease in blood flow. Not that many patients in the U.S. will get an MRI stress perfusion. MRI perfusion imaging is more common in Europe than in the U.S. In the U.S., we still do SPECT or exercise stress, but maybe we should be doing stress perfusion CT. So what was done in this study? The authors sought to compare MR perfusion and CT perfusion. Their gold standard was both invasive coronary angiography as well as SPECT. They enrolled 92 patients who had a mean age of 63 years. The results. The overall diagnostic accuracy of CT stress perfusion was 63%. That of MR stress perfusion was 75%.
the overall accuracy was statistically similar between MRI and CT. For sensitivity, CT was 92% and MRI was 83%. For sensitivity, we just consider the fraction of patients who actually have disease. There were only 36 patients of the 92 patients who were eventually determined to have significant coronary artery stenosis. So the sample size was not very big, but there was still no difference in sensitivity between CT and MRI. For specificity, that refers to patients who do not ultimately have disease. CT specificity was 45%, which was worse than MRI, which was at 70%. Why is that? MRI and CT each have their advantages and disadvantages. MRI has no radiation. For a perfusion study, a set of images through the entire heart is taken every heartbeat. On MRI, you see all the blood flowing through the myocardium over time in a cine loop. The picture of the blood flow helps improve your specificity. Also, you can obtain a set of perfusion images at rest and compare pre- and post-gadolinium images. For CT, it's very different. Adenosine is given, you inject 4 to 5 mls per second iodine. Enhancement in the descending aorta is then monitored with low radiation dose CT. When the enhancement reaches 300 Hounsfield units, a single set of images is obtained at the heart. So CT is one pass through the heart after iodine administration. MRI is 40 to 60 sets of images of the heart after gadolinium. You can do even a bit better by doing the same thing at rest and comparing the MRI before and after adenosine. So I think one reason for the better performance of MRI is greater confidence in imaging and having more information. Besides that, CT perfusion is still new. Artifacts occur due to beam hardening and those cause false positive findings. MRI has similar problems, but MRI physicists have been perfecting the techniques for more than 10 years. Conclusion. Overall, the authors concluded that the performance of MRI stress perfusion and CT stress perfusion were about the same. The main limitation is that the study is relatively small, only 92 patients. On the other hand, the study was prospective and multicenter. Much better than average data quality is likely present since the study was multicenter and done with careful training and data monitoring at the various sites. It really seems like there's a lot of potential for CT perfusion. Radiation is still a consideration, but the CT perfusion scan was only about 5 millisieverts in the current study. Newer and lower radiation dose scanners have been developed since the study. So I think the combination of CT perfusion with the coronary CTA would be fairly convenient for the patient. Overall, these were very nice results from the CORE 320 study group. The last article in today's series addresses allergic reactions to gadolinium contrast. The short title is Immediate Allergic Reactions to GAD-Based Contrast Agents, and the study is a meta-analysis of the literature. The study is from Cornell, and the first author is Dr. Bazzotti. The senior author is from someone who really knows about gadolinium contrast, Dr. Martin Prince from Cornell. Martin was the inventor of GAD MRN geography. I find him to be very thoughtful about these topics, and I like to hear what he has to say since I always learn something from him. As I mentioned, this article is a meta-analysis of the other articles in the literature regarding allergic events. Why is a meta-analysis necessary? One reason is that the rate of allergic reactions to GAD contrast is rare. If you just consider GAD reactions at your own center, you might have about one allergic reaction every month or every other month. Besides that, you may only use one or two contrast agents. So at a single center, we may not get a very broad overview of the reaction rates of different contrast agents a meta-analysis might shed additional light. Why now? Every month in this journal, we seem to have a prominent article about GAD contrast related to brain retention of gadolinium contrast. Six or seven years ago, we had an article every month about nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. In both cases, 
we think more and more about the structure of the molecule that holds onto the gadolinium atom. You remember that gadolinium is a metal. It is highly toxic in its pure form. But chemists have determined various ways of binding the gad atom to a larger molecule. The tighter the binding of gadolinium to that molecule perhaps results in a safer agent. The most complex chemical compounds create a three-dimensional cage that surround the gad atom at its center. That spiderweb type of molecule holds gad tightly in its place. The cage type of molecule with gad at its center is called a macrocyclic gad contrast agent. The first gad contrast agents were held at the end instead of a linear molecular structure. So there were 10 or more atoms in a long chain, and at the end of the chain, one of the atoms grabbed onto a gad atom. The linear type of arrangement of GAD is implicated with a greater risk of nephrogenic systemic fibrosis in many cases. Also, it seems like the linear GAD contrast agents have more reports of GAD retention in the brain. Besides linear or macrocyclic, other classifications for contrast agents are as either ionic or non-ionic. That's the background. This brings us back to our current topic. Lately, we focus on NSF and GAD retention. But how do various GAD contrast agents compare when it comes to allergic reactions? The results. The authors started combing the literature by searching both Google Scholar and PubMed. They looked for articles that use the American College of Radiology classification system of acute reactions as either mild, moderate, or severe. As a refresher, mild reactions are self-limited and may include hives, itchiness, scratchy throat, sneezing, and so on. Moderate reactions usually require medical treatment such as Benadryl administration. Symptoms include diffuse hives, facial edema, throat tightness, or hoarseness. Severe reactions are potentially life-threatening. Patients have dyspnea, laryngeal edema, hypotension, wheezing, or anaphylactic shock. Overall, there were nine high-quality published articles that were included, involving more than 700,000 GAD injections. Of these, 662 resulted in immediate allergic contrast reactions. So that amounts to nine allergic reactions for every 10,000 injections. In round numbers, that is 1 out of 1,000, or 0.1%. But how many of those were severe, life-threatening reactions? The rate of severe reactions was 0.5 out of 10,000, or 1 out of every 20,000 injections. At some moderate to large radiology practices, that suggests you might see one severe, life-threatening allergic reaction per year. What about different types of contrast agents? This seems to be good news, bad news. Gadodiamide had the lowest rate, about five times lower than other linear GAD contrast agents, and almost ten times lower than non-ionic macrocyclic agents. Why do I say good news, bad news? Gadodiamide is the contrast agent most associated with nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. Gadodiamide and two other linear contrast agents will be phased out over the next 12 months in Europe. They have higher rates of reports of retention of GAD in the brain. One of the highest rates of reaction was with gadophosphazet or ablovar, but that contrast agent is no longer available. It was used mostly for MR angiography. Most of the other contrast agents were similar in rates of allergic reactions. Finally, there were only two deaths in the series that were analyzed. This is a rate of 2.7 per 1 million administrations overall. That seems very reassuring. Conclusion 1. Lower reaction rates were seen with non-ionic contrast agents compared to ionic contrast agents that is pretty much the same as for CT contrast. 2. The overall reaction rates were the lowest for the non-ionic linear contrast agents. That's not ideal because those same agents have the most reports of association with NSF and brain retention of gadolinium.
In general, the macrocyclic agents had a higher rate of allergic reactions compared to linear agents. Some GAD contrast agents also bind to proteins. Those agents were also reported to have slightly higher rates of allergic reactions. 3. The overall rate of severe reactions for all agents was 1 out of 20,000. The rate of death was approximately 3 out of 1 million injections. That should be reassuring. You can look up the agents you use in the tables of this article. Dr. Matthew Davenport from the University of Michigan has written an excellent editorial about this article as well to help you put this in perspective. You will find these details in the February 2018 issue of Radiology. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blemke for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.